America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day. I'll tell you why. Because suddenly some non-combatants have gotten involved in this war and gotten involved on the right side. I'm not talking about the political war and President Biden's speech and what I thought was the underrated and pretty effective speech by Governor Kim Reynolds of Iowa right after the president. We will get to that and find out what that means. We'll also be talking to Jason Riley, the incomparably great columnist for The Wall Street Journal who has a similarly great book out that uh, everybody ought to read. It's about the tremendous success, economically, educationally, culturally, of the American black community. And what that community has achieved, uh, despite the negative version of events and the negative version of America from all too many black leaders. We'll be talking to Jason Riley later. We'll also be speaking to Henry Olson about uh, President Biden's speech. Did he get the reset he was expected to get? And we'll also be talking about what happens when the war is over. Because it's going to go on for a while, almost surely. But what is the outcome? Is the outcome the inevitable, uh, totally unavoidable disappearance of Ukraine from the map? It will be wiped off, or at least the uh, Russians and Vladimir Putin will install some kind of puppet government while uh, Vladimir Zelenko and the other Ukrainians who have uh, participated so heroically in this resistance will all be murdered. What is the likely outcome? A number of very smart people, including David French, Uh, in the Atlantic, and Tom Friedman, the Pulitzer Prize-winning, multi-Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist for the New York Times, they all have guesses about what happens at the end. And uh, Tom Friedman says it's one of three things. Uh, Two of those three things are terrible. One of them would be a gift from God. But we will be talking about that as well. Uh, First of all, I'm just so stirred and by by again the world coming together in a way that has not happened in my lifetime. I mean the whole world. First of all the UN voted. And this is the UN General Assembly. The Security Council of course doesn't matter because at the Security Council they got 11 votes condemning Russia, but Russia has a veto. So Russia the only nation voting no. There were a couple of abstentions. China and India abstained. But the uh, the Russians voted no, so no resolution passed. But they had 11 nations in the Security Council that voted to uh, censure Russia and to condemn Russia uh, very clearly. And now in the, the vote of the General Assembly, which is a remarkable thing, there is almost never on any issue this kind of unanimity. The uh, General Assembly voted 141 to 5. See if you can figure out who the five are. Uh, think about the worst nations in the whole world. Uh, uh, we voted 141 to 5 with 35 abstentions in favor of a Ukrainian resolution condemning Russia's invasion. Russia's a negative vote 
was backed only by four other nations. So who were they? North Korea? Yay! No. <laughs> what's, what's so interesting about this is what really does North Korea have to do with Russia? Uh, well, they're nearby, they're close by to one another, but uh, obviously they share an ideology. An ideology of tyranny and totalitarianism and abuse and destabilizing the world. Uh, then Belarus, which is occupied by Russia right now, I mean, it really is. The Russian forces entering into Ukraine are by the tens of thousands in Belarus, and apparently there are a few terrified Belarusians who have been part of the convoy uh, wending its way toward Kiev. And I hope their chance to do martyrdom for uh, the mother country, for Belarus, which is ruled by a dictator almost as feckless and pathetic and revolting as Putin himself, Alexander Lukashenko, uh, may he rot. But okay, so what are the other two countries that voted for Russia's side in the UN? Not Cuba. Cuba abstained. Uh, it, it's North Korea, Syria. And remember, in Syria, they, they estimate that uh, Bashad, the dictator of Syria, has killed about 250,000 civilians. And so we're talking about some of the worst people in the world, and Eritrea, which is also the site of worldwide massacres. So when you get the entire world together on something like this, it's important, but even more important, and frankly, even more surprising was the uh, a word about, and this is from the Wall Street Journal, from the business section of the Wall Street Journal, and uh, they point out, just read it to you, Apple Incorporated, Ford Motor Company, and Dell Technologies Incorporated joined the roster of companies retreating from Russia, while other global businesses, including Volkswagen AG, warned of further supply disruptions following the country's invasion of Ukraine. ExxonMobil Corporation said yesterday it was halting all operations at a multi-billion dollar oil and gas project in Russia and would make no further investments in the country following its attack on Ukraine. Do you, do you know what that means? I mean, ExxonMobil is a, one of the most substantial and influential and powerful countries in the world. And it means that Russia's ability to sustain its pathetic economy based on oil and gas is going to be greatly handicapped. The moves were wide-ranging and reflected several dynamics that have played out since Russian President Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine last week. Some companies have signaled they wanted to take a stand against Russia. At the same time, key parts and commodities that typically flow out of Ukraine, a major agricultural exporter and an auto parts supplier, have been bottled up inside the country. Sanctions against Russia, prohibiting a wide range of financial transactions and exports, have businesses halting sales and other operations there. Silicon Valley's tech giants have been facing particular pressure to cut off services and content for Russia. Apple said yesterday it stopped selling iPhones and all other products in Russia, saying it was, quote, deeply concerned about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, on Friday, Ukraine's vice president, uh, Mikhailo Fedorov, asked Apple chief executive Tim Cook to stop supplying Apple products and services to Russia 
including halting access to the App Store. Now, what's amazing about this is there's so much propaganda. Oh, big business. Evil. Evil. Amoral. They only care about money. They don't care about human beings. They don't care about their responsibilities to the world. Here we have some of the biggest businesses on earth, most of them based in the U.S., that are behaving with conscience, that are sacrificing money. Yes, shareholders, this means you. Okay, you'll make a little bit less. But the point is that what this means for the world is profound. And what it means also for all of those people, both on the right and on the left, who regularly just trash big business. Exxon, the U.S. oil giant, said it was preparing to shut down production from the massive Sakhalin Island development in Russia's Far East. That's disputed with Japan, by the way. Exxon owns a 30% stake in the project alongside Russian state-controlled oil producer Rosneft. Japan's Sodeco and India's ONGC Videsh. The company said it is taking steps to exit from the consortium. This is a big deal. And so what does it mean? And where does it go? And what happens in the end game? We're not close to it yet, but we will be ultimately. We'll get to that and much more on the Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776. God help me, I'm addicted to... The Michael Medved Show. of debate. You're trying to stir up some controversy. The Michael Medved Show. And remember, before the actual invasion began, there was quite a bit of worry about Germany and Germany's close relationship with Russia, business relationships, uh, relationships generally, because it's not that far away, frankly. And uh, despite the fact that uh, Russians and Germans killed each other more lavishly than any other two nations in the war. I mean, the the disproportionate number of the casualties in World War II were Stalin versus Hitler. And the slaughter on both sides was unbelievable. I mean, unfathomable. We're talking about more than 20 million people dying. And... Um, so, again, they had had a rapprochement. There were lots of business dealings between Germany and Russia. New word, production of Volkswagen's uh, legendary Wolfsburg plant are running normally, the automaker said. It expects uh, more restrictive production next week and that it would be unable to manufacture in Wolfsburg the week after. Production at its commercial vehicles plant in Hanover would also be impacted, as well as the component factories the company said. Meanwhile, the uh, Bayerischen Motorenwerke, BMW, the German luxury car maker, said it had stopped all exports of vehicles to Russia and would cease assembly of vehicles with a partner in Kaliningrad. Now, you may say, okay, so how many people in Russia really can afford uh, BMWs? Answer, plenty because it's a kleptocracy. This is not a socialist country. It is just a kleptocracy where the rich people steal. 
And a lot of those oligarchs and a lot of those crooks who run that entire system are, uh, won't be able to get their beamers. <laughs> it's just commodities giant Glencore PLC said yesterday it was reviewing its business in Russia, including stakes in EN Plus Group PLC, the controlling shareholder of the world's number two aluminum producer and oil company Rosneft Oil Incorporated. Uh, Glencore joined a growing list of companies, including BP, PLC, and Shell PLC, that are assessing their long-time ties with Russia. Now, what all of this has resulted in, this news just broke today. The uh, value at the moment of the Russian ruble is, uh, is now below a penny. Uh, this is this is a a real deal, and by the way, uh, Russian boycott has begun here. Bartenders across the United States are pulling Russian-made products from their shelves, as several governors sign orders to curb sales in uh, their states. That's a lot of states like Pennsylvania. Uh, says um, the state controls the hard alcohol sales now. This is really hitting uh, Russians where they live. Sports federations and leagues have moved aggressively to sideline Russia's teams and athletes since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. There's one moment that, again, is, is worth playing because it's so dramatic. One of the sports in which Russia has excelled recently has been tennis. They have a, a guy who has basically the same name as my son, Daniel, uh, Daniel uh, Medvedev. My son is Daniel Medved, but no relation, and he doesn't play tennis. But uh, the Ukrainian tennis star, Elina Svitolina, defeated a Russian tennis star to win the Monterey Open. Now, that's very good news, a victory for a Ukrainian. In her victory speech, she says she was on a mission. Uh, take a listen. This is clip 11. I was uh, on the mission for my country. It's a very, very special uh, event, this one for me. Uh, all the prize money that I'm going to earn here is going to the Ukrainian army, so thank you so much for your support. Uh, okay, that's, that's a beautiful thing. Right now, they're a team of American and British special forces, veterans, who are preparing to join Ukraine's fight for freedom. And, uh, again, um, Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, was asked about that, and uh, it's 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 a real thing. Uh, this doesn't necessarily mean that the United States is going to go in our army and uh, risk nuclear war with Russia to rescue these people, but God willing, they won't be requiring rescue. The uh, th there is no question at all, and David French, combat veteran. Uh, of Iraq and Afghanistan, I believe. Uh, but uh, David French has a new piece about um, the state of battle right now, where the one thing that people can say for sure is, uh, well, two things that are worth saying for sure. The Russians have just announced that they are acknowledging 498 killed in action. And uh, impartial observers in the international press say it's much more than that. They're lying. What a shock. 
about their level of casualties. And uh, so the question is, what next? And there, there are different scenarios that could play out. We will cover them all. There are basically three of them. One of them, which is called the utter disaster, which is the collapse of the Ukrainian government and armed resistance and the murder of its leaders. Is that possible? It's possible. Would that have impact all around the world and be devastating um, to world peace or the prospects of world peace? It would. Second possibility is what is called a dirty deal, where basically the Ukrainians negotiate, okay, those two contested provinces that Russia declared independent, Lugansk and um, Donetsk, those two provinces get split off from Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine makes a commitment never, ever, ever, ever to join NATO or even think about joining NATO. But in return, the Russians give an ironclad pledge not to invade again. The problem with that, of course, is an ironclad pledge from Putin and his government doesn't matter. The third possibility and the only good possibility in terms of an outcome from uh, what is happening here, this is the argument of Tom Friedman of the New York Times, is basically the collapse of the Putin regime. And people who are looking at this right now and looking at uh, Putin's mental state, as far as you can gather it, have you seen all the pictures of him where he won't allow people to be near him, to be close to him? They are, there are long tables where all his advisors are sort of bunched together, one under the table, and he's 20 feet away. And I'm not exaggerating. It's really 20 feet away at the other end of the table. Now, what is the deal here? Uh, Hitler was partially blown up, unfortunately not the whole thing, by a bomb placed under a table. Um, is this on Vladimir Vladimirovich's mind? We will get to that and get to the impact of Joe Biden's speech. Was it the restart that he needed? We'll be talking to Henry Olson uh, coming up on the Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved Show, Henry Olson is a Washington Post columnist. He's syndicated around the world. He's also a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. And uh, Henry is a uh, veteran Republican, uh, a principled conservative, and I'm very proud to say a, a friend of this show. Uh, you have a new column in response to President Biden's speech last night. The speech lasted 62 minutes. It was interrupted for tumultuous applause during the 12 minutes he assigned to talking about the Ukraine. Before we get to the rest of the speech, uh, that was an ex unexpected moment of uh, unity uh, for the country, don't you think? I do. You know, I think that's something that's happened, is that we've seen that we can bitterly disagree about many things, but when it's the question of freedom versus tyranny and protection of innocent people and support for their
their courageous attempt to remain free. All people of all sides can agree with that, and I think that's what President Biden evoked with his speech, and I think that's why you have, and I think your words were right, tumultuous bipartisan applause. Yeah, and so many members of Congress, both Republicans and Democrats, wearing Ukrainian colors and waving little Ukrainian flags. I, I can't remember anything quite like that. But uh, I've never. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I've never seen anything quite like that in my life. Uh, you know, we've seen support for countries before, uh, we've supported at countries before, but that sort of. Uh, emotional uh, association with the suffering people from another country on the floors of Congress. I've never seen that in my life. One of the things that was disappointing, of course, to I think many of us in, in President Biden's speech was he was very, very strong about uh, we will fight for every inch of uh, any, uh, we will defend any inch of any NATO countries. But there was almost an assumption that Ukraine was lost. Did you hear that? I think there's a very difficult position uh, for people in the West, which is a desire that Ukraine win and not a desire to risk war with Russia to ensure that Ukraine wins. I think Biden was trying to send that message, you know, specifically saying that there was not going to be a war with Russia, I believe, and specifically, I believe, saying that America wasn't going to intervene uh, militarily in this fight. Uh, and that's a dismaying situation, that there are these people who may very well lose because of their gross mismatch between their country's size and their military and the Russians' military. Uh, and that's, uh, that's something that, uh, if Ukraine does end up falling, or uh, capitulating in some way is going to be uh, very psychically difficult for a number of the people who've adopted their cause. Okay, speaking about psychically difficult, uh, you have a, a very provocative column uh, entitled, This Wasn't the Restart Biden Needed. Uh, what did he need and what did he deliver? Biden is, needs a shift to the center. Biden needs to show that he understands the aspirations of, uh, of Americans and not simply the active aspirations of Democratic Party activists and donors. Um, and what he did was nod in that direction by saying we need to fund the police. But Biden is inherently a compromiser, and everything that he was talking about was an attempt to sell liberal priorities and liberal policies with throwing a little bit of moderate mix into the stew. And that's just not going to wash. You know, people would like to see the border controlled. No ifs, ands, or buts. They'd like to see crime go down. No ifs, ands, or buts. And Biden's inability to do that because he doesn't want to fight with the progressives within his party uh, really means that his half-hearted leaning to the center is dead on arrival because it's not really where Americans want him to be to begin with. I uh, I watched uh, both of the responses, not all four, but I watched both of the responses from the radical Democrats. Rashida Tlaib spoke for the Working Families Party. She's a Democratic congresswoman from Michigan. And uh, it, it sounded almost as if she had moderated. She didn't uh, attack 
President Biden, and I'm sure that's a, a good thing. Uh, your your point would be that he did was very careful not to do anything that would particularly offend the hard left of his party, the Rashida Tlaibs and the Ilhan Omars and the Cory Bushes of this world. That's right. Uh, and he tried to echo a number of their provisions or a number of their uh, priorities. Of course, in interviews afterwards, both Bush and uh, AOC, Alessandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, panned his speech you know, by saying basically it still wasn't good enough for them. So it's interesting that Tlaib didn't go where her colleagues in the squad went, but it's very difficult when you have Democrats who are ultra-progressive, members of the Democratic Socialists, who want rapid, sudden transformation across all fronts, and Joe Biden's trying to deliver small incremental change towards the left, which is what the middle of America is willing to tolerate. That's just not an easy thing to do. And I don't think Biden is any closer to doing that than he was before his speech. Uh, and what, what's an issue where he could um, visibly move to the center without uh, producing a, an outraged reaction from Democratic interest groups that he is also counting on? You know, th there's lots of places where he could. Um, I think it, he could move to the center and withstand some outrage. You know, for example, increasing targeted funding for police departments or instead of simply saying our schools should be open, which is what he's been saying for a year, tying funds to school districts to say you must be open. Uh, I think that's where Americans are. But I don't think there is an issue that wouldn't create a angry response. What he has to do is show leadership and stare it down. You know, when Ronald Reagan was president, the right was angry about a number of things. When he was trying to pass bipartisan Social Security reform, people like Newt Gingrich opposed it. Um, when you're talking about budgetary deals that he cut, people from the right opposed him. Uh, when he did his INF deal with the Soviet Union, National Review said in a cover issue that it was Reagan's suicide pact. But Reagan stared down his critics from his base when he felt that he was moving in the direction that the country needed to. That's what Biden's unwilling to do. And until he does it, he has no political room to move to the center. That, that, I think, is very profound. People have also talked about his much-needing-a-sister-soldier moment where he actually does what Bill Clinton did in the middle of a campaign and maybe sometime before November stare down some of the America-hating radicals in his own party. And part of that can be with their anti-American messages, which it seems to me are less popular since the invasion of Ukraine. Americans love this country. Americans uh, disagree about how much we need to change in order to continue to live up to our ideals. But by and large, Americans love this country. Um, there are too many people, still a massive minority, as the San Francisco School Board recall showed, uh, but there are still too many people in the Democratic Party who actually don't. And Biden would be very well served if he were to call out those extreme minority and say 
that's not where I am. That's not where the Democratic Party is. Uh, but again, and, and that's certainly you. not where America is. Uh, Henry Olson, thanks for your perspective. The column is posted at our website. This wasn't the restart Biden needed at michaelmedved.com. We will be right back. The Michael Medved Show, all across America. This is the. Michael Medved show the uh, word on the State of the Union speech uh, we don't know yet about the ratings how many people are actually watching it and I'm not sure whether the the war in Ukraine which is so compelling I I will tell you and it's just my personal life not just being on the show I find it hard to stop thinking about it and I find it very difficult to stop talking about it because it is such a, a, a significant break in uh, our, our whole system of security and, and existence and the sense that we had actually won the war against communist tyranny. And this is not communist tyranny, but it's... Uh, it's Russian imperial tyranny and uh, a, a threat. I mean, I, I again, I keep, I, th I, I keep thinking about uh, my father's five sisters who died in Ukraine. And again, it's not distant. It's close my father's sisters, for goodness sake, and. Uh, I was reading recently, and I've been trying to get as educated as I possibly can on it, about the history of Ukraine, and they had a big timeline with uh, the big events in the history of Ukraine. And then if you look, and this is uh, in uh, an encyclopedia, and it, it, it says 1921 to 1924, it says devastating hunger famines, uh, at least uh, 2,000,000 starved to death. Well, those are my aunts. Um, I have their names up here on the board. I've had them up here on the board ever since I researched this family history. Uh, they died between 1921 and 1924, five of them. My grandmother had one surviving child of her six children. And then she came and miraculously, my father was born the year after she was reunited with her husband here in the United States. But. The, the misery that Ukraine as a n nation or as a wannabe nation, even as a province of Russia, the misery that they have been subjected to is hard to put out of mind. Now, having said that, I, I, I do think that that's true for other people, not me, who are not me and don't have the same kind of background too. And if the ratings were low for the uh, uh, Biden State of the Union, it, it might have to do with that. A CNN Instant Poll showed that uh, for people who did tune in to watch, 41% had a very positive reaction to Biden's State of the Union. And that's down 
10% from last year's joint address. It was not a State of the Union, not quite the same pageantry and not quite the same rituals that you go through. But uh, uh, everything is down for Biden, and it has been. And does he turn it around? Uh, well, certainly the first 12 minutes of his speech, which was all about Ukraine and responding to Ukraine, was effective with uh, bipartisan applause, and it really was. And when he said things like this, clip one. We're joining with European allies to find and seize their yachts, their luxury apartments, their private jets. We're coming for your ill-begotten gains. And tonight, I'm announcing that we will join our allies in closing off American airspace to all Russian flights, further isolating Russia and adding additional squeeze on their economy. He has no idea what's coming. The ruble has already lost 30% of its value. The Russian stock market has lost 40% of its value. And trading remains suspended. The Russian economy is reeling, and Putin alone is the one to blame. Okay, uh, CBS News, they just uh, released their poll. Overall, about 8 in 10 of people who watched the speech, and what usually happens with these speeches is people who don't like the guy giving the speech don't tune in. So it's not surprising, 8 in 10 approved of Mr. Biden's address tonight, including majorities of both Democrats and, crucially, independents. Among members of his own party, his speech received high marks among both liberals and moderates. And Biden was also extraordinarily clear, as he has been before, and this is very important, uh, talking not so much about how to undo the invasion of Ukraine's sovereign territory, sovereign territory and the ongoing massacres that are occurring in that country, but about any future designs Putin might have. This is clip two. Listen. Together with our allies, we're providing support to the Ukrainians in their fight for freedom, military assistance, economic assistance, humanitarian assistance. We're giving more than a billion dollars of direct assistance to Ukraine and will continue to aid the Ukrainian people as they defend their country and help ease their suffering. But let me be clear, our forces are not engaged and will not engage in the conflict with Russian forces in Ukraine. Our forces are not going to Europe to fight Ukraine, but to defend our NATO allies in the event that Putin decides to keep moving west. For that purpose, we have mobilized American ground forces, air squadrons, ship deployments to protect NATO countries, including Poland, Romania, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. And as I've made crystal clear, the United States and our allies will defend every inch of territory that is NATO territory with the full force of our collective power. Every single inch. Okay, look, that's, that's very important, and that's precisely why uh, I don't think that Ukraine would or necessarily should agree to any kind of settlement that precludes membership in NATO. NATO is a defensive alliance. NATO has never, never been used in any act of aggression. 
it has been used in responses to uh, uh, to massacres and uh, to atrocious behavior in the past. But the idea that NATO is somehow a threat to Russian security is preposterous. That's only true if you believe, as apparently Putin does, that um, that Ukraine is a sacred, indivisible part of Russia. In other words, for people who are trying to explain his state of mind right now, they have uh, the idea that uh, he views Ukraine as part of the Russian mirror or the Russian world, the Russian uh, existence, which is supposed to be dominant in the whole world, as Vladimir sees it. And uh, there are intelligence reports from British and American intelligence about his state of mind, which can't be happy right now. It can't be secure or maybe even functional, which is a great difficulty. Uh, we're going to be speaking more about the president's speech, what it did, what it failed to do. But we're also going to be speaking about one of the big issues in America that I was fascinated to see uh, Joe Biden didn't address at all. He didn't speak about the whole condemnation of systemic racism. He has before, but uh, it's as if all of that radical talk, I mean truly radical talk, those indictments of America that were unleashed after May of last year, after the death of George Floyd, uh, that, that went away. That wasn't there. Certainly no talk of reparations, which are wildly unpopular. So why not? Partially, uh, Jason Riley explains the whole thing. He speaks, I think, for a lot of uh, black Americans who do not want to be treated perpetually as victims, where achievement and success is actually uh, more possible and more beneficial than a sense of uh, grievance or claims of victimization. Jason Riley of the Wall Street Journal has a new book. It is called The Black Boom. And that's not boom as, exposure, as an explosion. It's boom as in an economic forward motion. And uh, we'll be speaking about that coming right up on The Medved Show. We'll also be talking about how this war ends uh, with the president of the Council on Foreign Relations and somebody who's written extensively on this, Dr. Richard Haas, later in the show. And we'll talk about one of the most remarkable speeches last night that got almost no coverage in this greatest nation on God's green earth.